Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Welcome, felons, friends, and freedom lovers. It is that wonderful time of the week again. Yes, it is time for another episode of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. My guest today works for an organization that is fighting on the front lines to bring justice to people who have been wronged by our broken criminal justice system. Now, I will introduce my guest momentarily, but first I want to let you guys know about two things. First is where to find the show notes for today's show. This is episode number 27 of Felony Friday, so that means you can find these show notes with links to everything that we're going to talk about today at lionsofliberty.com slash ff. And second, I want to let you guys know where I got the idea for today's episode. I actually got the idea for today's show based on discussions in our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. There's always great discussions going on there about politics, criminal justice reform, all sorts of other topics. Just type Lions of Liberty Forum in the Facebook search bar and you can join today. It's really that simple. We'll get you approved very quickly. So please, Reach out and join our Lions of Liberty Forum. You will not regret it. My guest today is Amshula Jairam. Amshula is a state policy advocate for the Innocence Project. She leads a state-level campaign to enact policies and laws that benefit wrongfully convicted individuals, improve public safety, and prevent future injustices. Amshula has prior experience working in the Washington legislative offices of the ACLU, And while at the ACLU, she built policy campaigns to pass legislation on a variety of national security, human rights, and criminal justice issues. She has also worked as a fellow with the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights to promote better policies, education, and awareness on critical issues. Additionally, Amshula has spent a number of years coordinating the pro bono efforts of private sector law firms. Amshula, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you so much, John. Excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you here. And uh, we're excited first to get to know you a little better first. And for the, uh, the Felony Friday audience to get to know more about the Innocence Project and how that works. So first, let's start things off by introducing yourself and getting to know a little bit more about your past and maybe getting to know a little bit more about how you first became passionate about the criminal justice system and how you became passionate about human rights. Sure. So I don't know that there was kind of any direct path. I was always sort of at or in the public service world, but it really wasn't until... 2009 or so, when I went down to DC and started actually working on advocacy campaigns around civil and human rights, that I started to get a sense of what our justice system really looked like. And, you know, I will say very candidly that, you know, certainly as a minority in this country, I think, you know, I have some perspective of what it's like to be marginalized. But it also, you know, the experiences of different minorities in this country are huge. And for South Asians, you know, many of us have been protected from the worst of racism by class. And so, you know, I didn't really understand what was happening or the extent of what was happening is maybe 
the right way to put it. So I think, you know, for me, I feel as though this may have happened for many of your listeners and just the public in general, just in the last year or two, because criminal justice reform has become so much at the forefront. But just the sheer scale of the problem and the sheer number of people who are in prison and sort of the disproportionate number of them who are black and brown, and that the state was really often conducting insufficient or irresponsible investigations and taking away people's freedom um, and all the sort of devastating consequences that that has wrought. And I think that really made me sparked something in me. I think everybody has, you know, something that really kind of drives them. And for me, this was it. And now at the Innocence Project, the last couple of years, Unlike some of my previous positions, you know, I've actually gotten to know people who have been directly impacted by the system. And it does, you know, for better or for worse, it really does make it so much more real. You know, some of them that I know well, when I think of, you know, mandatory minimums or these very excessive sentences or solitary confinement, you know, these people that I now know as human beings are the face of that. And it is all the more heartbreaking and all the more motivating, I think, to try to change the system. I think that is really common for people as they get more involved, as they learn more about the criminal justice system. I know that I can speak personally about my own path towards, you know, looking at criminal justice reform more closely. Growing up, it really wasn't something I I gave a second thought to. And I really didn't give a thought to it until when I was working out in California in a uh, manufacturing environment and I had the chance to work in a position where I was hiring people. And to see just the sheer amount of people who had a, a felony background, felony records, who were good people and were hard workers and deserved jobs. And to see that, you know, these people needed a second chance in society. And that was my first real exposure to it and really uh, set off a chain reaction, which led me to uh, starting our website, Lines of Liberty, which you've launched into a podcast. And now this branch off of Lines of Liberty for the Felony Friday show. So a, sort of a, a similar journey, different path but I can definitely identify with it. I was curious, Amshula, to learn um, what attracted you. You know, you're working for the ACLU, a very, very uh, prestigious organization. Attracted you to move to the Innocence Project? Well, I think it was just sort of time for a change. But I think what was, you know, I loved working on national security and I still am deeply, deeply interested in those issues. And it was definitely a privilege to work there and to work for a lot of really just very smart people But I think the unique thing about the Innocence Project, well, a couple of things, you know, just the sort of story behind the organization is something that I find pretty awe-inspiring. You know, now it's a name that a fair number of people know, but certainly that was not always the case. And that's been in very recent history. But often, you know, when I see our co-directors, our co-founders, excuse me, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld. I think about what it must have been like for them when they started taking these cases, because at that time, nobody believed really that there were any innocent people in prison, right? You know, now it's like something that even the most kind of pro-law enforcement will probably begrudgingly accept that there may be some mistakes that the system makes. But at that point, you know, it really wasn't something that anybody believed. And so it was truly like, in my eyes, uh, anyway, uh, a kind of 
David versus Goliath type of situation. So I think that, you know, certainly inspired and attracted me to this line of work. And I think the other piece of it is that, you know, the the special thing about the Innocence Project, and I sort of touched on this before, is that it is a place where, you know, as a policy person, you can often be sort of at the 5,000 foot or 10,000 foot level, you know, dealing with state legislatures or the federal government and dealing with other policy people and other lobbyists and other, you know, staffers who are all kind of not frankly in the thick of things for the people who are so devastated by this. And there is a certain amount of distance and, you know, maybe even a certain amount of or certain absence of sensitization to the issues that happens because you're just not embedded in it yourself. And here at the Innocence Project, you know, we do the bulk of the work, really, the bulk of the mission is still to serve clients and to free people who should not be in prison. So I see a lot of that as well, which I hadn't so much in previous positions. And that has been a really unique and just wonderful experience for me. And it has to be so gratifying working for an organization like the Innocence Project to put in all this time and to see at the end to exonerate someone, to see them be set free. That has to be a feeling that just is amazing. I, it's hard to even imagine. I wanted to ask you about, you alluded or you talked a little bit about the founders of the Innocence Project. Can you just give up maybe a little more background on, on how they founded it, uh, when they did and the, the reason in, or, or their passion for doing so? Well, I believe that the Innocence Project was informally uh, incorporated or made into a nonprofit in 1992. And I may get some of this wrong, so don't hold me to it. But I believe that, you know, Barry and Peter had started working on these issues many years before. And actually, your listeners and you, if you are interested, there's a really great Moth radio podcast by a leading scientist who was one of the first people to really teach both Barry and Peter about the science behind DNA, and so much so that they managed to rope him into a case to help testify on the DNA evidence that they had found and what it means and kind of explain that to a judge and a jury. So after that case, the way that this actually the scientist talks about it in his talk is that, you know, the more these things came out, you know, when you're in prison, inmates really, they really follow this stuff. And I think word spread, essentially. And obviously, there's the OJ trial, which I'm sure everybody knows about where DNA was used. That's a slightly different issue and another can of worms, which I won't go into. But, you know, the use of DNA to prove innocence just gained a lot of, obviously, an enormous amount of publicity. And both Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld found that they were getting letter after letter from people saying, you know, I'm innocent and can you help me? And that's how this process, I believe, went from being sort of a case here, a case there to something that they realized they wanted to tackle in a much broader way. So that's kind of, you know, again, you don't hold me to this stuff, but I, my, that's my understanding of sort of how this became, went from being a cause to really a movement. 
if people want to find the exact story and exact dates and everything, they can go to innocentproject.org and learn all about it. So I will refer the uh, Felony Friday audience to check that out. And I'll, of course, link to that in the show notes. And I'd also like to link to the uh, the podcast you referenced. Maybe after you can give me that and I can make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Sure. If you can, share some examples of maybe some of the policies or laws that you're working on currently at the state level to get implemented? Absolutely. So we actually just had a recent victory in Colorado. Colorado is now all law enforcement agencies that conduct what we call custodial interrogations, which just means that the person in question is in custody. They have to be video recorded. So that means from the time that a peace officer reasonably believes that a person is in custody until the end of the interrogation, the whole thing has to be on video. The governor of Colorado just signed this bill on Friday. I believe it takes effect in a few months, but it's a great thing for the state of Colorado. It's a great thing for the justice system when these things happen because one of the leading contributors to wrongful convictions is, in fact, false confessions. And a confession is so powerful as evidence that it can even trump DNA evidence. So, you know, you might find let's say I was a man and accused of sexual assault, right? But my DNA was not found anywhere in or near the victim. And it actually pointed to someone else. If I confessed, there's a good chance that a jury might still convict me, despite not only a lack of physical evidence from me as the source, but also physical evidence that points to someone else. And The reasoning behind it that a lot of psychologists talk about is that it's just very difficult for people to believe that anybody would confess to something that they didn't do. And I think it's also very difficult to understand the kinds of circumstances and the kind of stress and pressure that are used to really break people down and to make them just say whatever they think that the detectives want to hear in order to to get out of there. So that's one example. The other types of laws and policies we work on are really designed to address both the front end of the system, which means we look to prevent innocent people from being targeted in the first place and being incarcerated in the first place. And then certain reforms are tied to providing those who have been wrongfully convicted with some kind of means of legal redress. So either a way to get back into court, another way to challenge their detention, or if they have been exonerated, the right to sue the state for damages. On the front end, in addition to recording interrogations, changing eyewitness identification procedures has been a huge thing for us because amongst the DNA based exonerees, and I can explain the difference if you'd like, but amongst the DNA-based exonerees, roughly 72 or 73% of them were actually misidentified by eyewitnesses who thought they remembered, but in fact did not remember. And the science is pretty clear on the fact that human memory is extremely fallible, but there are some nationally recognized and kind of universally recognized best practices to address some of the fault lines in our memories and make whatever evidence comes out of it. And it should never be the sole piece of evidence, but to make that evidence more accurate and more reliable. So those are a couple of examples. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting you bring up false confessions and DNA evidence. Obviously, I knew you were going to bring up the DNA evidence because that is so big for exonerating people who are falsely accused. But with the false confessions, we just had on, on episode 23, Alan Hirsch, who is an expert in the field of false confessions. He's an expert witness. He's been mm-hmm. called over 100 times as an expert witness. And it was really a, a shocking, some of the stuff he revealed was pretty shocking, but it is understandable sort of how this happens because it is so counterintuitive to think that somebody would would falsely confess to, to a crime they did not commit. But and it's great to hear about the progress you just spoke of with that law being passed in Colorado where all interrogations have to be recorded because that is the one thing I asked them. What's the one thing that if you could get it passed right now to help to solve this so people are you know no longer interrogated in a way that you know forces them into falsely confessing or tricks them into falsely confessing? And he said, you got to record the interrogation. So that's awesome to hear that, that that's happening. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually it's recording interrogations particularly has gained a lot of steam. So we now I think Colorado is now the 24th state in the country to mandate this statewide. But there are also many jurisdictions that do it individually. And actually, like, so, for example, in Colorado, the Denver Police Department has been doing this for over 30 years, but now the entire state is doing it. So it is really terrific. And actually, you know, also on the flip side, it's not just, you know, that we are protecting the innocent by putting it on record, but we're also really protecting police because if they have done, you know, a proper job and if it's been above board and they conducted themselves exactly according to the protocol, then that will also be clear. One thing I want to ask you about, and I think you talked about it when you were talking about how the Innocence Project was formed with people, you know, hearing about the two founders exonerating people and then just sending the mail asking for help. How today does the Innocence Project reach out to find people who are uh, right now trapped in the criminal justice system, innocent people trapped in the criminal justice system? How do they identify cases where they can help? So the National Innocence Project, which is where I work, you know, obviously much has happened since the inception, since the early days when it was just a handful of people. And now we have a full-fledged intake department and they receive, you know, hundreds and thousands of letters from people all over the country. And actually, there is a cool video on our website, if your listeners want to check it out, that that details that process and features one of our intake staff. But over the years, they developed a pretty detailed questionnaire, figured out what questions to ask and would send it back to them based on the letter and based on the information in the letter. Of course, we also, because at the moment, we only deal with individuals who might have some DNA evidence that can exonerate them. There are certain people that are going to be weeded out who we might refer to elsewhere if we think that there does seem to be a good case that to be made that they are innocent. But the unfortunate truth, I think, is that there just aren't enough people doing this. I'm sure you're well aware of the kind of inadequacies of our public defender system in general because of a lack of funding and, you know, uh, attorneys who are kind of overloaded. But within the world of innocence, there's also just kind of a too limited number of attorneys who are doing this work and too many people who are asking for help, frankly. And we have somewhat of a backlog of letters, actually. So it's difficult. And I should also note that the National Project here in New York 
is just now one of many projects. There's a whole Innocence Network that has sprung up, and they do work in states all across the country. And they're kind of just terrific soldiers, you know, in this battle or whatever. And many of them actually take cases where there is no DNA evidence as well. But the development of these projects has certainly helped to deal with the volume. But I think as with every other legal service provider, the problem is volume. The problem is that we have so many millions of people in prison that there's just not enough help out there to go around to address that scope. You may have seen this statistic, but you know they say if even one to two percent of all of the entire prison population is innocent, we're talking about like 10 to 20,000 people. So I think really the core issue here is that we have this overloaded system. So any issue that we're trying to tackle, we will never have enough resources because there are just too many people. Yeah, I mean, I, I know from my perspective, looking at the the overloaded, the, the mass incarceration that we see throughout the criminal justice system, I mean, as a libertarian, I would say a lot of that could be eliminated. A lot of those people could be set free if you just stopped putting people in jail for nonviolent crimes, nonviolent drug offenses, and then you could focus more energy on uh, you know violent crimes and put more time into that, making sure that people are not locked away who are innocent, who did not commit those violent crimes. But one thing I did want to talk to you about, I had Erin Murphy on the show a few weeks back, episode 22. Uh-huh. She's a, uh, a DNA forensic expert, wrote the book Inside the Cell, yeah. The Dark Side of DNA Forensic Evidence. And one of the things she talked about, she talked about a lot of stuff, and a lot of it went over my head. But one of the things she talked about was a murder in a uh, Yale lab several years back, and this uh, woman's body was found in like a, uh, I don't know, like behind a wall in an area that was isolated from everything else. And they actually found DNA on her body from the uh, construction worker who had built that area. And I guess it was so isolated and temperature controlled and whatnot, that DNA was able just to, to stay there. So when they found it, they thought that they you know found the culprit. And it turned out this guy had been dead for like four years. So it was impossible. I'm just wondering in, in cases like that, I know the Innocence Project uses DNA to exonerate. Does it work the flip way as well? Would you also use DNA if DNA was used to convict someone and the evidence was bad or tainted in some way? Well, I want to be really careful here only because Erin Murphy actually came here to talk to us as well maybe a month ago, and she was terrific. And a lot of it also went over my head. And frankly, you know, my obviously my expertise is really on the policy side. One thing I would say is that we do have cases in which the DNA um, that was found that ultimately excluded our client was then put into the a database called CODIS. And it's a national D- DNA databank. And through CODIS, they, you know, in some of our cases, they were able to get a hit to an actual person who was then investigated and identified as the true perpetrator of the crime. I think certainly, and really, I'm going to just reiterate again that I am really speaking as a layperson whose expertise is not in the science at all. But I think 
the refrain that we should all be telling ourselves, no matter what side of this process we're on, is that we really have to be very circumspect and very careful and very skeptical of everything. And in no case should rely on just one piece of evidence to obtain a conviction. And law enforcement will say that too, I'm sure, you know, and what we have seen as a pattern in a lot of our cases is that it was like a single thing, you know, it was a single eyewitness who was like, this is the guy I saw, or it was a bite mark, which I don't know if you're familiar, but that's now something that's been totally discredited. But, you know, we had a a client who was convicted on the basis of a bite mark found on the victim that experts claimed exactly matched his bite. So I think whichever way it swings, you know, there has to be corroborating evidence, there has to be a full-fledged comprehensive investigation. I think that's great advice to be skeptical of everything. Because at the end of the day, we're dealing with, you know, a human being's life here and to lock them away for life, unless you can prove their guilt, unless you can prove they did it, that's something that we do not want to be doing. So I definitely agree with that. I wanted to ask you, and you don't have to give me an exact number. I don't want to put you on the spot with that. I was wondering just to ballpark if you had an idea of how many people roughly the Innocence Project has helped to exonerate. Yeah. So our project has exonerated, I'm just going to make sure, but I believe it's 342 individuals. Keep in mind that DNA evidence is available in less than 10% of criminal cases. So we really are talking about like the tip of the tip of the iceberg, if that makes sense. And often that's because there simply is no DNA evidence or no biological evidence uh, to be found. Sometimes that's because the evidence has been so degraded or destroyed that it's no longer testable. And so relatedly, we actually also work a lot on preservation of evidence laws to try to keep the samples and maintain them. But yeah, that is our current number um, is 342. And of those cases in roughly about half, I think the actual perpetrator of the crime, and again, this person was identified after an investigation, are 147. So that's where we are now. And I also understand that the trend has really been upwards in the last few years. I think in part because, you know, maybe we've gotten better at it and uh, projects around the country have gotten better at it, but also you know, I hope that things are being better preserved and there are multiple stakeholders in the justice system who are open to looking over old cases and reviewing things. Yeah, I think it has to do with also, as as you said at the beginning of the show, that people are starting to finally focus more on the criminal justice system and starting to realize that there's some, some serious issues here. Yeah. So I think that does have something to do with it as well. Just a couple more questions, then I'll let you go. How is the Innocence Project funded? How do they get funding to pay for all this work? We have multiple sources of funding. We are funded by individual donors. We also have foundations that fund the work. And the way it's sort of broken down is that often a foundation will fund like a specific part of the work. So for instance, the state policy reform work is funded by a particular foundation. But we also, again, have some very generous individual donors as well. Okay. So kind of a follow-up question to that. If uh, some of the Felony Friday audience is listening here and they, they listened to Alan Hirsch last week talk about false confessions and they're, and they're disgusted with that, and they listen to Aaron Murphy talk about DNA, they're listening to you today sharing about the Innocence Project, 
and they want to help, they want to get involved, what can they do to help out the Innocence Project? I believe we actually have a volunteer coordinator. So certainly you can reach out to her. You know, I think the other thing that is, from my perspective, I think as a policy person, is that we often pay a lot of attention to federal legislation and federal politics, but really where the rubber hits the road is in the state. You know, it's your state and local governments that matter the most in terms of your life and in terms of your freedom and in terms of, you know, your access to services. So I think one piece of advice that I would offer to your listeners is to really be clued into the kinds of criminal justice reforms that are coming down within your state. And certainly if there is an innocence reform on the table, call up your local representative, you know, and let them know that this is an issue you care about and that you believe is important to justice in your state. I think the other thing is to just kind of keep talking about this stuff and keep learning about the stuff and talking to other people about it, because the more, you know, people engage, the more we can all do. Absolutely. I think that's key. Share an episode like this with your friends. You know, I'm sure if you're finding interesting content here, if you're enjoying this conversation and learning a lot, then then share with other people. I couldn't agree with that more. Before we go, do you have any parting words for the uh, Felony Friday audience? Anything else uh, going on with the Innocence Project you want to make us aware of? Well, I would stay tuned because we are looking to tackle some new issues. I would also, I think it maybe my parting words in general would be that we all need to be a lot more humble before we jump to making to conclusions or judgments about either individuals or cases or whatever it is. And I think that's, you know, for me, that's the number one lesson that I take from our work. And also that, you know, whether the person is innocent or has committed some kind of like infraction and done their time, that, you know, the purpose of our system, really, it should not be retribution. It should be justice. And we originally committed ourselves to that and committed ourselves to the idea also that once someone has paid their dues, they can continue on in their lives. So I think, you know, we should all look to our governments to try to to live out those truths. That is great advice. Amshula, I just want to thank you for being so generous with your time and for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much, John. Okay. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed today's show. Amshula is really doing some very important work for the Innocence Project and the Innocence Project as a whole. I mean, I cannot praise them highly enough for the work they're doing. I am so grateful for the Innocence Project for the time they're putting in to just think about the number of people that have been exonerated, the number of people whose lives have been saved from being locked away, from maybe even facing a death penalty. It's amazing the work they've done to this point. And I am so, so grateful that Amshula took some time to share some of the work the Innocence Project is doing, to share this with the Felony Friday audience. You know, I really think Amshula hit the nail on the head when she said that more and more people are beginning to understand that there is a need for criminal justice reform. As you all know, that is the reason why I do this podcast every single Friday, to shine a light on the broken areas of the criminal justice system and to give a voice to champions of justice reform like Amshula, who are working daily on the front lines to initiate change in this broken criminal justice system. And I finally feel like we're getting some traction here. And I finally feel like the nation, people are coming together 
is starting to understand that there are really, really broken areas in our criminal justice system that need fixed. And the only way that we're going to fix these things is by spreading the word, shows like this. Guys, if you like this show, please share it with a friend. Share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, however you share your things that you enjoy, please share this show. And also, another great way you can help this show, if you haven't yet, if you haven't yet subscribed on iTunes to receive the show that way, or on Stitcher Radio, or whatever podcatcher that you use to uh, listen to your podcast, please think about doing that. And please, while you're at iTunes, leave us a rating and leave us a comment as well. You guys have no idea how much that really helps us and that'll really help us to grow the show. So if you like what you're listening to, please help us out. Now that's it for the show today. If you want to reach out, if you want to reach out to me, contact to me. If you have some ideas for the show, if you have uh, maybe a guest that you'd like to hear me interview, you can shoot me an email at felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. If you just stumbled upon the show today, I want you to also remember that we have three shows a week on the Lions of Liberty podcast. We have our Friday show, Felony Friday, which you're listening to right now. We also have shows on Mondays and Wednesdays, hosted by Mark Clare. Mark is doing a phenomenal job with this show. He's well over 200 episodes, and the guest list that he has is really unbelievable. That's it for the show today, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.